Nicely done. Appreciate that. Reminder of how there is no victory without the struggle and the humility. And we are thankful for the testimony of Jacob in that uh, song that Jerry just played so well. John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12 in our Bibles. Lord willing, we will come to the conclusion of this great chapter as Jesus has completed his final public sermon or, or discourse, and then will, Lord willing, be in John 13 next week as Jesus enters into the upper room and begins some final symposiums, some final teaching moments with his disciples before he goes to the cross. But here in John chapter number 12, we uh, read in our scripture reading verses 44 through 50, but I want to back up. Uh, again, to verse uh, 28, where we looked at last week, and we saw the confirmation of the Father, where in verse 28, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. And there again we hear or we read of the voice of God uh, declaring that Jesus Christ is his son and fulfilling all the will of God and God's redemption plan. And we saw how God had voiced his confirmation of Jesus in Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus, in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration, and then here again at the end of his public ministry. We also saw in verses 30 through 33 last week, we saw the judgment of the cross, that there is a crisis that comes at the cross, where each person must either accept or reject Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior. And then in verse 31, the drawing of men, and then the defeat of Satan. So we've seen the confirmation of the Father, we've seen the judgment of the cross, we've seen the drawing of men, and then down in verse 34, the identity, the identity of Christ. We go down there, and we see in verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And we concluded last week by looking at this part, this portion of this passage, as Jesus speaks once again of him being the Messiah, this title, Son of Man, used 83 times in the Gospels, always by Christ, identifying him with mankind, a unique title that spoke to his humanity, and actually was even a prophetic reference going back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where we first see that title being used of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. The people had misunderstood the Scriptures. They looked at the Messiah as living forever instead of understanding the prophecies and the offerings and even the Passover feast that they were about to partake of later that week, where Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb who John the Baptist had even preached and announced, behold, the lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And yet there were so many people that were cherry-picking verses, misinterpreting reinterpreting scripture, missing the symbolism, missing the 
true, full understanding of the offerings and the Passover, and that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was right there in their midst, who had come to die on the cross and pay the payment for our sins. So we see the identity of Christ not only as the Son of Man, as the Savior of the world, but also as the light of the world. And that brings us down once again in John chapter number 12. And we see there in verse 35, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. Once again, the offer of salvation coming to the lights. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, coming to him in salvation, repentance and faith, coming to the light that the light of Jesus Christ might shine on our hearts and bring us to repentance and faith in him, to salvation. And then as believers, walking in the light, as children of light, walking in that light continually, faithfully, regularly, regularly, daily, in obedience and holiness and righteousness of life. Showing evidence that we are children of light by living regularly and constantly and faithfully in that light. So then that brings us to verse number 37. Actually, let's go back up to verse 36 and we'll transition by looking at the B part of verse 36. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. Here Jesus is preaching salvation, calling men to repentance, even down to his last public discourse and sermon, and then he departs from them. One commentator says that more than likely he left Jerusalem and went to Bethany, which was a favorite spot for him to go just outside Jerusalem, just being a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. But verse 37 we read, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So we're going to see this morning the response of the people. Some stubbornly refused to believe. We read there again that though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to believe that there could be such stubbornness. That there could be such an unwillingness to see the truth of what Christ had preached, to see the miracles and the meaning and the message, to see the holiness of His life, to see His compassion, His love, His mercy, the very glory of God in their midst, and yet to stubbornly reject Him. It's hard for us to imagine. But many of us have either been that stubborn child or we have had that stubborn child. Or stubborn grandchild. And it just doesn't seem to matter what we try, no matter what persuasive techniques we put in place, no matter what we take away, no matter what reward we offer, nor how many spankings or lashes of spankings, or groundings, or eternal timeouts. It just doesn't ever seem to click. 
And those are difficult days when we as parents or grandparents or when we as the child have had to experience those stubborn moments where there was a battle of the wills, so to speak. And sometimes we are the ones who eventually get to that place where we have to face the hard knocks of life. God's been trying to get our attention and we're just stubbornly like the mule digging in our heels. The truth has been preached. Our parents have maybe stepped in and have tried to do their part. There's been teachers, family members, coaches, all kinds of people have been trying to steer us in the right direction to help us make the right decision. And we just seem to be determined to go our own way, to do our own thing in stubborn resistance. Thankfully, there are some here by the grace of God who you say today, praise be to God because I was that stubborn person. God finally got a hold of me. I got saved. And you're thankful to this day. And we're all thankful because we've all, in some respect, whether we got saved at a young age or saved later in life, we've all been that stubborn person who has been outside of God, outside of His grace. But God reached, He drew us, and He saved us. We came to that point where we realized that we were a sinner in need of salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We came and we trusted Christ in saving faith, repenting of our sins and putting our full faith and trust in Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation, forgiveness of our sins. There were some. They would not believe. Verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah, Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory, and spake of him. There were some who believed superficially. There were some who had a shallow, a superficial conversion, so to speak. But there are a group that had a stubborn refusal to believe. Here's a group of people who are stubbornly refusing to believe we'll get to the group that will believe superficially or shallow. But he deals with this stubborn group first. And he actually makes reference to prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 in verse number 1 is the first verse that he quotes from. Isaiah 53 in verse number 1 is quoted there in verse 38. That the saying of Isaiah, or Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? But then verse 39 has that phrase, therefore they could not believe. Now this, this, this is something that, that we struggle with. We live in a world, we live in a culture that, again, is very therapeutic, is very nicey-nice. Everything is love, everything is live and let live. And 
the parents that tell their children no and discipline them with consequences, even to the form of corporal punishment, we are told that we're hurting their self-esteem. We're traumatizing them. We're, we're, we're living in a culture today where individual truth and living out our expressive individualism requires us to just always pat each other on the back, never disagree, never confront, and just live in such a way that you live your truth, I live my truth, and we can just kind of go along to get along. So this really assaults our sensibilities that God would say to a group of people, I have given you the gospel message over and over and over. I have shown you my love. I have gifted you with blessings. I have led you out of Egypt. I have given you so much, yet you despised despised my blessings, despised my mercy, despised my grace to the point that God actually declares a judicial hardening. This is a difficult place to be. This is a hard thing to even grasp with our minds, so conditioned by our culture for everybody to just get along, pat each other on the back, ecumenical type of religious type of activity, boiling every down, everything down to the least lowest common denominator, often which is some error that we can all sort of agree on. On and on we could go. And this really goes against our modern sensibilities where we have even preachers who deny the reality of hell and eternal punishment. Where anything that is negative is seen as hate. Where any kind of disagreement is seen as intolerance. But here these people are, despite the abundant miracles Christ performed, despite His life, His teachings, and the many changed lives as a result of His power and forgiveness, yet there were many who still rejected Him. We've got to remember that Matthew chapter 12, earlier in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 12, they were so blasphemous and audacious and stubborn as to actually say that the miracles of Jesus were done by the power of Satan. That is blasphemy against God and the Holy Spirit. To say that the work of God is the work of Satan... That is a despicable higher level or lowest level of evil. To tell the very Son of God, God in the flesh, that your work is the work of Satan himself. That is diabolically evil. That just goes to show how depraved our hearts are. How wicked we can be. It scares me to death how wicked and evil my heart is. How grateful that I am that I am saved. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. Because I'm still a mess, but I'd even be a bigger mess if I did not have the Holy Spirit. To think of how wicked and how evil man can be. We just studied in Sunday school this morning about Herod the Great who murdered when Jesus 
was announced as the, the Christ child, as the wise men came, and Herod the Great murdered all children ages two and younger for fear that there might be a king who would threaten his throne and his power. How wicked, how evil. The genocides that we have seen around the world. I met a man in Africa who came out of one of the tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis in, in uh, um, Rwanda. I was in Africa and I met a man who got saved and had fled Rwanda and come to Kenya. And I met this man and he was dying of AIDS. And he came to Christ. And he told me just a little bit about what it was like to experience genocide in his country where those tribes were murdering each other. Genocide that's going on right here in the world in places like communist China and in the abortion clinics around our nation and around the world. How can man be so depraved as to take an innocent child, preborn life, and to say that life doesn't matter? My career, my economics matter more. Oh, we think we're so great. We have an iPhone 14, we have a Samsung Galaxy 22. We can surf the net, we can do incredible things on the ball field. I've enjoyed watching the World Cup. I'm not much of a soccer fan, but I enjoy the World Cup, and it's amazing. You can run 50 yards, and somebody can kick the ball the other way. But anyway, it's amazing how, how they can run, and they can do that for 90-plus minutes and barely have sweat on their brow and not even be bent over panting. I would run five yards, and I'd be panting. Incredible shape. The people mesmerized by that activity. The incredible stadium that was built. We can go on and on with the abilities that man has out of the image of God that God has created him with. And man has taken that grace and despised it. And lifted himself up like the Tower of Babel. And assaulted the very name of God. And here we are in a judicial hardening where at the end of Christ's public ministry, he quotes from Isaiah 53 in verse number 1, because there were many that day who would not believe the report of God, the gospel, who would reject the Messiah. They rejected Christ so long and so often that eventually God gave them over to their stubbornness and the consequences of it. And it's not that a Jew could never get saved... It's not that the church shouldn't evangelize Jews. Of course we should. We understand from the book of Romans about the grafting in. But the point is that this hardening of their hearts is something that even the prophet Isaiah, looking ahead to the inspiration of God, said this is what will happen as you reject the Messiah and the majority of the nation to this day, continues to reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But let's continue to think about this hardening a little bit and really understand what the Bible has to say about this. Exodus chapter number 9, we read about Pharaoh, who would not obey God and let God's people go. In spite of signs, 
in spite of the testimony of Israel, in spite of all the revelation he had been given, Pharaoh would not let Israel go. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's hard again. That is hard for us to understand. God is a God of love, yes. But his love emanates from his holiness. We cannot separate God's character into these different segments and say, well, God is this, but he's not this at certain times. No, he is whole. He is, in his essence, one. And his love flows out of his holiness. His love doesn't contradict his holiness. As Pharaoh continued to reject God, as Pharaoh rejected the revelation of God and Moses saying, God has sent me to lead the children of Israel out. And as the plagues came, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God would have to harden it judicially in response to Pharaoh's choosing to harden his heart and reject God's command to let Israel go. We could go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11 in the New Testament where the Antichrist, there is a strong delusion that goes throughout the world so that people will take the mark of the beast, people will follow the Antichrist. Again, a judicial hardening based upon the response of that person or those people in their stubbornness and in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to understand that this is not just a New Testament concept, nor is it just an Old Testament concept. You know how some people, they attack Christianity and they say, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment. He was a God that was mean and cruel. But then Jesus came along and, and he kind of smoothed things out. And he's, he's kind of that, 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 that person that... that comes between us and God, and, and so we don't have a God of judgment anymore in the New Testament. And then there are some who go even further, and they say, well, you've got to have, you've got to have Mother Mary, the mother of God. And in, in order to get to Jesus, you've got to go through Mary, because she's the, the, the motherly figure that pats us on the back, and you know, is, is the one who kind of cradles us, and, and holds us in her arms, and, and, and then after you get you know, through Mary then you can get to Jesus and then eventually to God. This is some of the teaching, this is some of the ideas that are out there. You'd be surprised sometimes, but as you meet people and you talk to people, there's a lot of people who are very mixed up. They've kind of picked and chosen from all kinds of different ideas and religions and beliefs and whatever they found on the internet and whatever grandma said and third removed cousin, you know, and they just begin to blend it all together. But we can go back to Proverbs chapter 1 and we can see this is not a new concept in the Bible. This is not something that just the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament, and we understand the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament is the same God. This is the same God that we serve today. But Proverbs chapter number 1. This is, a, again, a passage that, that's hard for us in our modern cultural sensibilities, to, to fully grasp and understand. But this is not a new concept in John 12 that Jesus is introducing. Proverbs 1, and going down to verse 20. Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice, her voice in the streets. 
Again, can I pause here for a moment? There is wisdom crying out all the time. We have wisdom on our phones in the form of a Bible app. We have Bibles. I don't know about you. I have at least 10 in my house. I mean, we have Bibles galore. We have Bible studies. We, we, we have multiple opportunities right here at Berean to be under the teaching and preaching of God's Word because that is our primary focus here. Not to be a social club or an entertainment center, but a place where we can hear the Word of God. Wisdom is crying out. She uttereth her voice in the streets. There is a public proclamation of wisdom. She crieth in the chief places, in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set at not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. And then we see the judicial hardening of God and the consequences of it. Therefore, as wisdom is cried out, as wisdom is proclaimed, and we understand the book of Proverbs, wisdom personified is Jesus Christ. We see the Messiah even in Proverbs. We see Jesus Christ even in Proverbs as wisdom personified. In 1 Corinthians, Jesus is wisdom. He's unto us wisdom. He is the source of all true wisdom. He is crying out. There is no excuse. Therefore, we read, shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices? For the burning, excuse me, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. This is the same truth taught in Proverbs 1. We must not reject the voice of the Lord. We must not keep as a stubborn person refusing to allow God to teach us. For an unsaved person, this is a matter of eternal life or eternal damnation. 1 John 5 and verse number 16 speaks of a sin leading unto death. So for a believer, for a believer... There can be a moment where we cross a line and God says enough is enough. We see examples of this. Achan, Joshua chapter 7. Do not take from the goods there in Jericho. And he took. And he and his family were stoned. We can go to Acts chapter 5. And we can read about Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. Lied to God, kept back a portion of the sale. 
And they were taken out from that place dead as God struck them. 1 Corinthians 5, in verse number 5, the sinning brother under church discipline is turned over to Satan because they have refused all the steps of Matthew 18 in turning from their sin and turning in repentance. And they were disciplined out of the church, and God commands the church, and by the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of God and the preservation of his word, he even says to the church, turn them over to Satan. That's tough. Church discipline is a difficult thing, but it is a restorative thing. It's a purifying thing for the church. It speaks to the holiness of God, and it speaks to the desire for that person to repent. And we read in 2 Corinthians that that man did repent. And the church was to welcome him back into the fold because he had repented. But we have to understand that these are truths that are hard truths, but they're taught in Scripture that we must accept and obey. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, abuse of the Lord's table can result in sickness and even death among God's people. And then in Hebrews 6 and verse 6, going back to unsaved, those who apostatize, those who are in apostasy, they are referred to as thorns and briars, or they go to their, they're said to go to the thorns and the briars. They're rejected, they're cursed, they're burned. So we have to understand the holiness of God and the love of God and understand as the two meet together in John chapter 12 that God is saying the judicial hardening in verse number 39, therefore they could not believe, is not because God refuses them, God reprobated them to hell. No, that's not at all. It is God declaring because of the hardness of their hearts as they have chosen over and over and over and over again, refusing to trust Christ as the Messiah, refusing to repent of their sins. After all that God has done, he finally says, you've crossed the line and there's a judicial, a judicial hardening a turning one over to their sins. When that happens to a culture, we read about that in Romans chapter number 1. And in Romans 1, the next lowest level is referred to as the reprobate mind, where there is a denial of reality. And we can see where we're at in our culture, can't we? We can make that application very easily. As the reprobate mind is entering into even American Western civilization and culture, there is a turning over in a consequential judgment, the law of sowing and reaping, and eventually a judicial hardening, where God says, okay, you have refused me for so long, I will turn you over to your sin. You can have your sin and all the consequences of it. And he says that in love, but out of his holiness. We have to live with that tension. 
we also have to be careful not to try to take God's place and act like we know where that line is for people. Keep praying for that person who is out of the will of God. Keep praying for that person who we don't know. They seem to have rejected Christ once and for all. Keep praying for them. Keep witnessing to them. Keep reaching out to them. It may be in their latter years or on their deathbed. We can't take the place of God and know where that line is. But it's also a warning for all of us. There is a place of no return. A place that can result in a person's death. For an unsaved person, this may be the last time you hear the gospel. An unsaved person may sit under the sound of God's word for years and months. And there may be that final time where they hear the gospel and they've rejected it for too long. And we know from Hebrews 9, it is appointed to men once to die and after this the judgment. There's no second chance or third chance or fourth chance or purgatory. I was sitting in a hospital waiting room one time and I was flipping through some of the magazines. And again, this is back in the days before cell phones. And uh, you had to actually read the stuff that was there um, or bring a book uh, or a magazine with you, right? Uh, nowadays, you just pull your phone out. I know some of you young people, I mentioned this in Sunday school, some of you young people, you don't know what it's like to not have a glowing rectangle in front of you, okay? But there was a day we went to the doctor's office, the dentist's office, and we actually picked up the magazines or the books that were there because there was nothing else to do while you're waiting in the waiting room. And I picked up some literature and I was fumbling through it and it said something about God and the Bible and all that and I was flipping through and I got to a page and then it said something about um, hell and judgment and then it said but something along the lines of but thank, thankfully God has been gracious enough to at the final judgment to give us one more chance to repent of our sins and we're all standing there in line and the hellfire is just on the other side and we have one last chance God gives us to repent. I was like, what is this? And I flipped it over and it said Watchtower Society. I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> that was, I was touching you know, false teaching. Uh, there was literature there that was propagating the, the, the false gospel of Jehovah's Witnesses. That is to be a curse. That's another gospel. It's to be a curse. And uh, I don't think I threw it away, but I was tempted to just throw it in the trash can, you know, let somebody read that. But there are people who believe that. Oh, I can live however I want. I'll, you know, it, it, I get down and I'll be on my deathbed. I'll be in the hospital. I'll be on oxygen. And I'll have one last chance. Or I'll get on to the other side. And Catholicism has manufactured purgatory to really help soften this blow of eternal damnation and hell. And Jesus is saying, now there are some who are in this crowd who truly come to Christ. There are some even at the cross who had nailed Christ, like the centurion who trusts Christ, like the thief on the cross. There are some religious leaders like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, that apparently got saved. But it's a sobering reality that there is a point where they cannot believe because they have stubbornly refused for too long. And we're thankful we read in Romans that the, that Israel will be grafted in. They'll be grafted back in. That they are not outside of the grace of God for all eternity. There's a 
general overall majority rejection of Christ as the Messiah, but even Israel will one day come to Christ. In the tribulation period, as we've been looking at on Sunday nights, there will be a time where the, the nation, by and large, comes to Christ. We've had a saved Jew, Dr. Hartman, here, who's burdened for his people, and there are people getting saved, even among the Jewish population today around the world, and we thank God for that. But this is not just a distinctly Jewish message, though that is the primary application. There are people all around who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people who sit in church and sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word that are literally hanging over the fire of hell. And they are rejecting the truth that they hear every Sunday, that they hear even in their homes. And you've heard my burden for young people. Because I've seen far too many of my own classmates who sat in the same church services, who went to the same Christian school, who heard much of the same preaching and teaching that I did. And to this day are still living in rejection. I watched young people walk across a Christian school platform and walk from the platform with a diploma from a Christian school and go out and turn their lives over to the devil. And spit on the face of all those who taught them the truth. It's a burden in my heart that young people or old people or people in between don't walk away from the truth and reject Jesus Christ and go to an eternal hell and damnation. May none of us come to that part where our eyes have been blinded, our heart has been hardened, and we cannot see, we cannot understand, and we cannot be converted because if we have rejected for far too long. May we not be a believer who, in stubborn resistance to God and His will and obedience, we go and do our own thing and suffer the consequences for it, because we think we know better than God. We have eternal life, yes, there's evidence of our salvation, but we don't want to live the full life, the abundant life. We want to live in that mushy fence where we have one foot in the world and one foot with Christ, and we try to walk on that fence and that line, and we just keep finding ourselves compromised. And the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And no wonder we can never have victory, and there's not salt and light and a difference for, the, for Christ in this wicked world, because we have too many Christians compromised, loving the world and the lust thereof, and it's passing away. When we should be doing the will of God, which abideth forever. So for a believer, while our salvation is secure, there is a warning about purity and holiness of life that we must not tempt God or despise His grace and mercy. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! The strongest words that God uses of negativity. God forbid! Anathema! May it never be that we despise God's grace in that way. Hebrews 12 warns us of God's chastening. But then we have to be warned that sometimes God has to remove. We've seen here the response, the stubborn response of the people. We just have a few minutes left this morning to see another response. Let's drop down to verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. 
For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. John seems to be particularly bothered. And I know, again, this is by the inspiration of God and the preservation of God's word. But there is this part in John's personality, in the humanity in which God uh, kept for us to see in this. There seems to be a particular bother for John that these people wouldn't confess Christ. They've given all. They've, they've denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed him. John's writing now, and he has trusted Christ with his whole life. And he loves God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he has no sympathy for the weak, superficial, shallow professions where it, me- it means nothing. It makes no difference. Has all the Jesus talk, has all the Jesus lingo, can say all the right words, but it doesn't make any application in the personal life. And it's almost as if we can read into verse 43, John's disgust with this kind of superficial, shallow Christianity. There were some, they believed, we read, among the chief priests, among the Pharisees, or, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Again, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are examples of at least two that came out from the religious leaders and trusted Christ. They gave evidence of that when they claimed his body after he was crucified, after he was taken, when he was taken to the tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea even gave of his, his own to provide a place for Christ to be buried. But we read in Matthew chapter number 10 and verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Ultimately, what is John trying to say? A true believer will give evidence. There will be proof in his or her life of their salvation. And a person who is not willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, give all to serve and to follow and to love Jesus Christ, they aren't worthy of being called a disciple. I don't know what God's doing in His church, but judgment must begin at the house of God. And I can't help but wonder if God isn't even right now doing a purging in His church. I don't know what lies ahead, but I've read some things about some Christians who serve the Lord even in the USSR. I've read several of the stories from Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've read some of the stories from missionaries who have, even to this day, been serving faithfully in places where they are forbidden to preach the gospel. And I can't help but wonder. I'm not trying to be a doomsdayer here. But when the respect, the I can't even say word respect for marriage bill. The ruin of marriage bill, the disrespect for marriage bill gets passed by the Senate. You can't help but wonder. Is God saying, okay, all the superficial, shallow, professing Christians, show me. Show me 
what you've got. Show me the truth. Give me the proof. Verify that you're truly saved and born again. Not with all this talk, not with all this shallow, superficial stuff, but real, genuine, dedicated, sacrificial love for me. And live it out, even when it's hard, when it means it costs you. And those chief priests wouldn't leave to follow Christ. And John has no tolerance for them. Because they wanted their position, they wanted their wealth, they wanted their status in society. They wanted everything that they had in that position and in that title. And they would gain the whole world, but lose their own soul. They didn't truly come to Christ and deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. We are told that our faith without works is dead, James 2 and verse 17. We're told in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 1 and verse number 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame him and without blame before him in love. God wants us to show by our life a life of confession. Yes, the words of confession that I am a believer and I will follow as we just sang and we'll sing more great hymns from this hymn book that speak to our following Christ with 100% devotion. But not just the words, but confess with our life that we are a disciple of Christ. That we love Him. And we will give everything for Him. That we will not deny Him because He has saved us. And that salvation is real. It is genuine. And it means we live a real, genuine, saved life with love for God. With holiness and purity, not perfectly, but with all of our desire to be a genuine Christian who has given all for Christ. And not putting our hand to the plow and looking back. Because to do so, that person is not fit for the kingdom of God. So where are we at? Does our life confess that we are born again? What about our confession? Would we confess that Christ is our Savior? Even if it means death as a martyr? It may come to that. I don't know. In our lifetime, it may. We don't know. But may we have that resolve because we truly know the Lord. That we will love Him and serve Him until the end of our days, even if it means persecution and martyrdom. And may we not be in stubborn rejection, either as an unsaved person or as a saved person who is not willing to fully obey God. Because if we live that way, there will be consequences. And those consequences could mean a judicial hardening where God says enough is enough. God spare us from that. May we live in the light of His grace and His mercy each and every day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this great passage. Lord, these truths are are heavy, but Lord, we thank you for them because they remind us. They point us to the Savior. They strengthen our walk with you. They help us to 
once again measure ourselves by the standard of God's word. And Lord, help us to love you and to serve you and be faithful, even when it's hard, even when it hurts. And Lord, may we make a difference for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we live faithfully for you and share the gospel with others. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may they repent and turn from their sins and turn to you in saving faith even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand and find your hymnal and turn in your hymnals to hymn number 442. We'll sing uh, once again, I Will Follow. Again, that may be a somewhat unfamiliar uh, hymn to us, but powerful words, wonderful words. We'll sing stanza number one. Jake will come and lead us in 442, I Will Follow. If God is speaking to your heart, you can do business with the Lord even as we sing. If we can help you in any way after the service, please let us know and be happy to do so. Jake is going to come and lead us. 442, stanza number one is our dedication invitation hymn. 